the blessedness of this hour has already been great. To be able to pray as we've done and to sing these songs that we've sung, we now, for the next few moments, will give some consideration to a section of the book of Isaiah. May I invite you to turn again to that book as we will take up our consideration this evening in the 40th chapter. I might say that uh, Brother Gary and I did not uh, converse about the topics, but I noticed he chose two of the songs out of chapter number 40. And therefore, I might be quick to say that many of the ideas about which we've sung and the ideas we've expressed in the words of those songs have really been a powerful part of some of the developments of these chapters. As usual tonight, as we come to the book of Isaiah, may I suggest to you that again we, will, we finish the 39th chapter last Sunday evening. As we take up the 40th chapter tonight, we in many ways come to a major division in the book. In fact, it's a rather interesting way to remember at least much of the features of the book of Isaiah. Let me share it with you. We all know that there are 66 books in the Bible. 39 of them are in the Old Testament and 27 of them in the New. And although we've mentioned this previously, tonight is the night we might well note the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Exactly matching the number of Old Testament books, those form the first major section of Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 66 are the second section, and there are 39 books in the first section, 27 in the second, and that exactly matches the number of Bible books in the Old Testament as well as the number of Bible books in the New. It is the case, and as we take up the 40th chapter tonight, we will in fact find ourselves face to face, as we have done in the past, with some major developments and matters of great intrigue to us. And so, without further delay, let's go ahead and turn to that 40th chapter, and let's use it to begin a discussion as follows. Isn't it true that quite often we are so impressed with the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus? We read about them, and we are impressed about the character of the development of the person, as well as His kingdom. But one matter that I suppose we might easily overlook is this. The Old Testament also foretold and prophesied about John the Baptist. That is to say, it not only specified the nature of the Christ, but it also detailed somewhat of John the Baptist. As we turn to the 40th chapter, let's notice how that chapter begins as I read several of these verses. Beginning in verse number 3, it reads, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. May I suggest the latter part of verse number 8 is actually quoted verbatim in 1 Peter 1.25 as a reminder of the solidarity and the fullness of the Word of God, and how that it is a certain thing. But of course, our emphasis, at least for this part of the lesson, takes us back to verses 3 and the first or two that follows it. 
I'm sure we all recognize the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. That text is quoted in the New Testament and applied to John the Baptist. In fact, you'll notice on that slide, I've invited you to notice this is one of the two primary Old Testament texts that spoke about the nature of the coming one you and I would call John the Baptist. The other is Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, at least for the moment. Could I invite you to notice a few of the comments I've asked you to highlight about John? Shouldn't you and I be impressed with the kind of measures that the God of heaven took to ensure the success of the gospel? Not only did He send His Son, He sent one who was slightly older than Jesus to prepare the way to allow the hearts of men and women to be ready for the matchless message that Jesus Himself would preach. Did you note some of the features provided about John? In Luke chapter 1, we're given the greatest amount of detail. We're told his parents were a man named Zacharias and his wife named Elizabeth. We find in these that they, in fact, strove to walk blamelessly before God. And Luke 1 verse 5 says they were successful. Perhaps it's no wonder that with parents like that, that John is given such a powerful description in the Word of God. I've invited you to notice a few of these things. First of all, in Luke 1 verse 17, John is called the Elijah that was to come. In the same way that Elijah prophesied and spoke so powerfully the nature of the Word of God, so too did John. We each remember that John ate locusts and wild honey, He didn't dress in the common way the normal people did, but he was a man that would tell it exactly like it was. You and I well recall he did that more than once. He even had the nerve to tell, of course, the great king, the woman you now have, you're not lawful to have her. You see, she's another man's wife. We each well remember that John lost his head because of that. You see, ultimately, he was beheaded. But should we not be impressed with the directness and the character of the conviction he had in the nature of the one you and I would recognize as the Christ? Is it any wonder that then some of these additional comments about being made about John? You recall the clear way he directed the attention of one and all to Jesus. As great as John was, he knew that he was not the Christ. In fact, you can recollect many of the statements as well as can I. He, in fact, speaking of the Christ, would say, He must increase and I must decrease. He could also make reference to this truth. I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloosen the latchet of His shoes. Among the verses of which we read concerning those matters, Jesus could nonetheless say of John, He, in John 5.35, is a burning and shining light. Is it any wonder then that the greatness of John might well take us to the powerful passage in John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7? Speaking about the nature of Jesus and John, that particular passage would point out to us, Jesus was the great light. John was not the light, but he bore witness of the light. And oh, how effectively John did it. Isn't it true in Matthew chapter 3 that all the area of Jerusalem would come out and be baptized by Him? Is it any wonder how effectively He prepared the hearts and minds of people so that they would then be ready to hear the message 
and to hear the powerful truths that Jesus Himself would share with them. As you revisit the particular passage here, note the way it continues in verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now to hear all of that reminds you and me, we notice that valleys will be built up and mountains will be removed. That which is crooked will be made straight. What does all that mean? It would appear, based on this context, and the one that follows in the New Testament descriptions, that this is a rather direct reference to the clear way that John would present exactly the Word of God. He didn't beat around the bush. He simply would, in fact, fill in any impediment to understanding, fill in those valleys. He would also remove any obstacles, remove the hills, the mountains that would cloud one's understanding. John did that. Isn't it amazing then that when all the people would come out to the Jerusalem area to be baptized of Him, that that was the very time that Jesus Himself would come. And you and I recall, John baptized our Lord. As that description is given to us in Matthew chapter 3, all of that reminds us that there were prophecies in the Old Testament that were built upon those truths and the gospel writers in the New Testament borrowed those ideas and applied them to none other than John the Baptist. That particular discussion of chapter number 40 so far only leads us to the verses that follow it. Allow me to take up our reading in verse 9, and let's give some appreciation to the interesting comments that Isaiah made at that time. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm, and carry them in His bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him in the path of judgment, and taught Him knowledge, and showed to Him the way of understanding? At this point, it in the matter before us, rather amazing. You might well appreciate that as Isaiah made these statements to the people of his day, there no doubt were many immediate questions. Isaiah, when are these things going to happen? Are you sure that this God of whom you have preached to us, is He able to bring about what you've said He is? Remember, we've already learned, Isaiah told them, you're going into Babylonian captivity. Although Assyria will not take you, Babylon will but a remnant shall come forth. Isaiah, how do you know that we're going to be spared? How do you know there shall be a remnant? Are you sure that God is able to take care of these matters? It is in that kind of context. Would you notice again verse 12, please, with me? It seems to me the questions are rather profound. 
as you and I now make attachment of these ideas to the God of heaven, hear again these questions. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Who among us can tell how many gallons of water are in the oceans? How many are in the clouds that are in the sky? What about those waters that exist beyond, you see, the environs of earth? Who among us knows the number and the amount of it? God does. Next question. Who has meted out the heaven with a span? Our astronomy friends can again give consideration to the heavens and they can describe lengths in terms of light years and even parsecs, which are a long, long way. And may I suggest those are only estimates. How far away is the center of the universe in terms of a consideration of the galaxy? None of us knows. No astronomer knows. God knows. God here asks the question, Who has meted out the heaven with a span? Who can tell how big the universe is? Physicists and other scientists give a great deal of consideration to the size of the universe. None of us know, but God does. Look at the next question. Who has comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? I think all of us are well aware that there's a lot of dust upon this earth. The number of grains of dust consistent with this planet is truly an exceedingly large number. And who among us would even be able to estimate the number? And yet our God knows the exact number. Should that not impress us with the understanding of the fact that He made this earth and it is He who reigns and does so supremely over it? Look at the next question. Who has weighed the mountains in scales? Now, I would say that there's a significant study of certain arenas and scientists upon our land. That particular study has to do with the characteristic of mountains, how they are formed, what happens to them over time, the characteristic of earth's crust that rests beneath them. And those are all interesting questions and powerful observations. But the question is, how much does a given mountain weigh? Now, you and I happen to live in an area in which we have lots of hills, and some of them are fairly good-sized. As you think about those up in East Tennessee, though, they're quite a bit larger. And those over toward Mount Everest in that part of the world are larger still, but who among us knows how much any one of them weighs? Our God does. I hope questions like that were a rhetorical issue for the people of that day and are a constant reminder to us about the vastness of God's knowledge, the magnificence of His understanding, and that of which He's capable. It is with that in mind, some additional slides or thoughts on that slide would be these. Would you look near the ending of the chapter at some other features of God? Not only is His knowledge so vast... May I turn you to verse number 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of His understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. 
they shall walk and not faint. There's a song in our book that we enjoy singing that's patterned after that verse, verse number 31. But as you and I build up to that one, isn't it an amazing thing? He never tires. How often have you and I been tired? Weary? Exhausted? To reach a point which you really have reached a point where rest is the only alternative. I hope all of us are not only amazed, but quite thankful that we have a God that never tires, He never wearies, and He is never one who shall faint. There's no task too great for His shoulders, no, to- no chore too mighty for His hands. There are times I know that each of us have found ourselves amazed in hindsight at what He has accomplished. As you and I look at the matter of hindsight and appreciate the unfolding of events, that surely had to be due to Him. As you and I close this chapter, would you again be impressed with verse 31? They shall wait upon the Lord, and those who do this shall renew their strength. When you and I, from a spiritual standpoint, find ourselves a bit weary, I hope that we will reflect upon a verse like this one. For despite the weariness that may have come our way, may we understand that we have every reason to renew our strength when we trust in the Lord, wait upon Him. For are we not promised in a verse like this one, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. He did not say that they may do this. He said they shall do this. And I'm persuaded that the priests and prophets of ancient Israel surely were motivated with incentive by a verse like this one. Is there any reason you and I cannot be given the greater light of the New Testament that's been given to us? That verse ends by saying, They shall walk and not faint. One by one, as you look at that particular slide, God's greatness is highlighted to us. And it's done so in perhaps a way that really points us over to chapter 43. Verses 24 and 25. There's one other element of God's greatness that perhaps fits in so easily at a time like this one. Brother Dennis read this one just a few minutes ago, but may we hear it again. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and wilt not remember thy sins. If I may paraphrase some of what God just said, you haven't brought me the sacrifices which you should have. You haven't served me as faithfully as you ought to have done in light of what I've done for you. But when you do turn to me, I'll blot out every one of your sins. I'll remember them no more. Talk about a God that's faithful. Though we disappoint Him, no doubt quite often, though we fall short of what He would invite and so much lovingly wish for us to do, our failures and the other means by which we have brought those disappointments, He said, when you shall turn to Me, I'll blot out all those transgressions. I'll remember them no more. Isn't it still an interesting thing that that's quoted in the New Testament? In Hebrews chapter number 10, verse 17, there under the banner of the New Testament gospel, are you and I not reminded, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. 
may I say that that certainly is a great, great thing indeed. You know, human memory often fails us. There are things we'd like to forget, but sadly we don't. And when it comes to my sins and yours, when we have received forgiveness from that, it's gone. He remembers it no more. That kind of completeness perhaps speaks so much about the nature of what our God can do. The greatness of God takes us to the next point in our lesson tonight. Having looked at these two, let's turn to chapter number 41. We have a development that presented for us in this particular chapter. Verse number 8 of that chapter reads as follows, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And we immediately encounter a beautiful description, a description of a man known as Abraham, who was called the friend of God. The idea of being a friend with God, you may have noticed from that verse, was not only intriguing, it was highlighted as distinct from Israel at large, it was highlighted as distinct from Jacob at large, but Abraham was called the friend of God. One more time, that's quoted in the New Testament. The principle is highlighted for you and me in James chapter 2. Abraham is called the friend of God. That statement in verse 23 of James chapter 2, which sets the concept of the friendship of Abraham with God before us, is a concept that perhaps is worthy of at least a few moments' attention. Because isn't it rather special to contemplate being a friend of God? There's something about a close friend, isn't there? There's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, the Proverbs writer will tell us. And sometimes that friend is such that we're able to appreciate that there's a sharpness that comes with iron sharpening iron. As all of that's presented to us, you and I are reminded that to be a friend of God implies that one is in agreement with God, that you're walking in the same direction, that you're headed to the same destination, that you are journeying in such a way that you're doing so with a unity, a harmony, and a togetherness. Can two walk together except they be agreed in the words of Amos 3, verse 3? Perhaps in that light, you and I should reflect upon Abraham, though Abraham made his mistakes. We appreciate that he was called the father of the faithful and highlighted in verses like these as the friend of God. May I say that there are some Bible characters like Moses in Exodus 33, 11, who there was granted the opportunity to witness a part of the glory of God. But yet friendship with God, it involves commitment and unity as we've already noted. It involves a question for you and me. Jesus said something about being a friend. Did He not say in John chapter 14 and highlighted also in John chapter 15, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. That asks a good question then of me and also of you. Are we the friend of the Lord? Are we doing what He says? If we are, then we indeed have passed that powerful consideration of being a friend of the Master. And in so doing, we can understand what a greatness it was to speak of Abraham this way. But regardless what else we might want to claim, if we aren't doing what He says, then we're not His friend. 
In John chapter 15, verses 23 and following, we find that description highlighted in which that idea is set before you and before me. The next point tonight, not only taken from Isaiah 41, but it brings us to a rather profound consideration. Chapter 43. Would you turn over to Isaiah 43, and let's give at least a passing consideration to verse 7 of that chapter. As we've each observed throughout this study of the book, we again are trying to select those matters that seemingly find reappreciation so wonderfully in the pages of the New Testament and set before us the truth of the gospel. Listen to this interesting description of Isaiah 43, verse number 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I've created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. The larger context describes for us some references to the immediate nation of Israel. In fact, there are times when it still could be asked, why did God found the nation of Israel the way He did? As we reflect upon bringing that people out of Egypt, leading them to that land of Canaan, establishing them in that place, why did He do it? This verse gives us the answer. I created Israel for my glory. The whole purpose, the entirety of their existence surrounded directing glory to me as not only the one who founded and established them, but as the one in an ongoing way who directs attention to the God of heaven. I would submit that's perhaps the simplest answer that the Bible ever gives us about the main reason as to why God established Old Testament Israel the way He did it. It was for His glory. That was the reason. The human family likes to ask questions. And there's nothing wrong with an appropriately asked question. But there are times when we understand that as questions are asked, we must recognize that sometimes profound questions have lofty answers. Many would say, maybe He created them so that that part of the world would be ready. Maybe He created them so that they, in fact, could set forward the matter in history. We've often noted one of the great byproducts was the fact Jesus came through their lineage. And what a blessing to the whole world, of course, the Lord is and shall always be. Surely, that kind of glory is a part of what we read here. Do we not read in Ephesians 3.21? Speaking about the nature of what Jesus brings about through the church, it directs glory to God. That takes us right back to your purpose and mine. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? In the larger context of the Word of God, the purpose of our existence upon this planet is not by itself to acquire possessions, not by itself to make money, not by itself to accomplish other things of a physical character. Our main goal in life, and the highest one by far, is to glorify God. If it's possible for you and I to say that when it comes to the time of our demise, we have been successful and our life has been a blessing. No doubt to ourselves, but so many others whom we've influenced and who we've moved in the right direction. God said here, I made them for my glory. 
On that slide, I've invited you to notice another several set of ideas, at least based upon that and its context, one of which might easily be noted to be this. Following that seventh verse, isn't it easy to appreciate in it, chapter 44, verse number 2. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And then notice verse 24 in the same chapter. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by itself. As all of these descriptions are given, surely God's greatness is intertwined within it, even as we've already noted tonight. But among it, it seems to me a very powerful reflection upon, notice twice he said from the womb. Our land continues to, of course, discuss much the matter of abortion. This is just a sampling of so many other verses in which we find references to youths which God says He knew in the womb. That is, before what would be recognized as the process of natural birth. Is it that at least a reminder that just as sure as Jeremiah was told this in Jeremiah 1.5, and earlier in Isaiah 1 we find references to it, and it'll reappear in Isaiah 49. All of it's a reminder of the specialness of life and how that it is a blessing from God from the time of conception onward. Tonight, as we come near the close of our lesson, but one last thing. I reserve this one until this point, but one word shall do it. Cyrus. Now, maybe the name by itself, at least yet, has not welled up with a great deal of consideration. May I point you to the closing verses of Isaiah 44, and then on into chapter 45. Verse number 28 of Isaiah chapter 44 reads like this. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before Him. And I will loose the loins of kings, to open before Him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now you and I have noticed God has made mention of somebody named Cyrus. Who is this? It's easy to see from the verb tenses and from the other things that this person lived in the future from Isaiah's day. Who was it? When did he live? Did he accomplish the work that God intended for him to do? And if so, what great lessons might there be in that for you and for me? May I fill in one detail? You and I have already learned that in the great book of Isaiah, there was a statement that there shall be a remnant that will come out of the days of captivity and will be reestablished in this land. Now, we've already learned that God was great enough to bring that about. Though they'd be taken to captivity, they would come back. That remnant would. You and I might now ask the additional details. Who is Cyrus? History will tell us who Cyrus is, and not just history, the book of Ezra. Another Old Testament book will cast a spotlight on the man we know as Cyrus. Who was he? Cyrus was a Persian king. 
And aren't you impressed as well as am I? He is called by name in Isaiah. It would be 300 years before Cyrus would even be born. And God, by name, called the name of the man who will let his people come out of Babylonian captivity or Persian and return to rebuild Jerusalem. We read it in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Cyrus signed the decree that let the captives return, and God called him by name. This is one of the most noble passages telling us of God's command over time. Though the man was not going to live for hundreds of years, God told us what his name would be and what he would accomplish and that it would be, in fact, a blessing to the people of God. I hope you and I won't soon forget about Cyrus. Because as Isaiah mentioned, if this was a key element for the chapters to follow, a guarantee about the nature of their restoration. Isn't this a reminder of perhaps that great truth highlighted in Isaiah 46? I've drawn your attention to verse number 9 of that chapter, but maybe it's time to read it in its fullness. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Did you notice God says from beginning to end, from A to Z, there are no others. There is no other God. And everything that's ever happened be it past, present, or future, I know it. No wonder he could call Cyrus by name. No wonder he could inform Isaiah as well as the people, here's the name of the man that is going to be the key figure in granting the authority to allow my people to return. And so it was. The book of Ezra is a powerful summary of some of the things that are shared with us here in Isaiah 44 as well as 45. And with that powerful note, let's close our lesson tonight and do so with a statement of summary. I highlight at the bottom of that slide just some major matters you and I have discussed based on Isaiah chapters 40 through 45 this evening. Among that listing, we highlighted the work of John the Baptist and how that again, approximately 850 years before John was to be born, God informed the people of what his work was to be the forerunner of the Christ, the one who was, to, who was to prepare the way. We also looked at the greatness of God, who that He has weighed the mountains, and He knows the amount of dust. As great as those thoughts are, you and I should be reminded our God is greater still. The third point we highlighted, the great friendship that Abraham enjoyed with God and how that you and I are privileged to be the friend of the Master Himself. The fourth point was the purpose of life. God said, I made him to glorify me. And aren't we thankful that you and I can remember verses like this one? The whole conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The final point was Cyrus. What an interesting, interesting thing that the name of the man who was a critical figure in the return was in fact provided. Tonight, the book of Isaiah has continued to be a thrilling consideration. And we'll continue our journey next Lord's Day evening, if it be the blessing of God, as we journey into the verses that follow this one. 
tonight among this assembly. If there's anyone in need of responding to the gospel's invitation, we'd like you to know that the Lord is anxious and pleading with you, and He wants you to become to a point of faithfulness at His side. If you never become a Christian tonight, realize it's not man's plan for salvation. It's God's. And He commands that a person must believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized in that act that washes sins away and adds you to the church. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in that regard, we'd love to do that. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but have not lived faithfully to that calling, maybe you lost sight of the greatness of promise of the future and the surety that rests with the Lord. Maybe you've allowed the claims of men to disturb your mind and cause you unrest and unsettled character. Realize in the hollow of His hand... He not only has weighed all the waters, He also has in safekeeping those that are in His family. If you're not a faithful member of His family, we could assist in making that so tonight. You need to repent of sins known publicly. And as you do that, acknowledging them, making confession of them, we'd be honored to assist and to help in prayer tonight. We would love to help in any of these ways and do so at once while together we stand and sing.